If you have a Bible with you in some form, on your phone or your tablet, or perhaps you have a hard copy, go ahead and open that up to Daniel chapter 1. You can follow along. If you didn't bring one with you, uh, you'll find them in the rack in front of you, and you can follow along that way. If you don't own a Bible, there's some free ones in the back. You're welcome to take one with you when you leave today. Um, or go to the Lost and Found in the coat room. There's some really nice ones there. You're, you know, <laughs> nobody else wants them, apparently. I mean, really, there's one that's been there at least two years now, so have at it. Just don't tell the owner I told you that, okay? So Daniel chapter 1, we're going to get kind of a, a big picture view, kind of wrapping up the Heroes series. Uh, I told people last week we were headed after this. We're doing a, a short three-week thing called You Asked For It, and it's really a, your response. If, if you want to send a question in, something you'd like to hear being taught on during that three weeks, that's what's that about. It's, it's called You Asked For It, and there's an email address that's been set up for the church called questions at newhopehazlet.com. So if you have a question, something that you'd like to hear being taught on, go ahead and send your question in. Questions at newhopehazlet.com. But do it soon. Would you do that? Because I don't want to get the questions like the day before I got to teach, right? Okay, so do it soon. And that's in two weeks. We'll be starting that You Asked For It series. And you get to play a role in that. So this, this big picture is uh, that we get a, a whole new view of what a hero looks like this morning. We've seen a willing hero when we saw Noah. And we saw an unwilling hero when we saw Moses. And we saw an unlikely hero when we saw Gideon. A very timid hero when we saw Esther. And super bold, I mean like off the charts bold, David, bold hero. This morning what you're going to look at is an individual who doesn't fit into categories as we know them. He he reaches a, a, a place very few people have ever understood As we've looked at each one of these heroes, I've come to this understanding that in every single case, it is not the nature of God to put up caution tape around their life. You may have opened up your bulletin this morning already and found that there's a piece of caution tape inside your bulletin and wondered, what's that there for? You're thinking maybe Mark's going to talk about the building campaign or something. Well, it's for more than just a bookmark, and it's not about the building campaign. The deal is this. We find very quickly when God shows us these heroes in Scripture that they are individuals who wanted to put caution tape around their life. They put it up just like we would be tempted to do because it's human nature. But we see that our God never puts up caution tape. As a matter of fact, when He calls them to something, He wants them to go boldly into the opportunity that He's put before them. So what we have to recognize is it's human nature to put caution tape up for ourselves to keep us from going into certain circumstances, but God doesn't do that with his heroes. The reason it's in your bulletin, I'll come back to in a little bit, and we'll save that for later, but I want to use it as a reminder in your own life, and I'll explain why. What you're going to discover about Daniel this morning is this is an individual who lived with absolutely no caution tape around his life. He's an individual who boldly went into the things that God had presented before him. Now, you might wonder, what does God think of Daniel because of that kind of behavior? I want you to see a verse that most people have never seen. Most people have never bothered to read the book of Ezekiel. But Ezekiel recorded something in chapter 14 about God's view of Daniel. Let me show this to you. Ezekiel 14, verse 19. God said, if I send pestilence into a land... And pour out my fury upon it in blood. 
to cut off from it man and beast, though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they shall deliver neither son nor daughter. They shall but deliver their own souls by their righteousness. An amazing thought. How'd you like to have God say that about you? This one has such an impact on people around him, lives his life in such a righteous way, is so significant in the culture that he's part of, that that individual, I would destroy the earth, but not that one. An amazing thought that God has listed these three individuals right there saying, I'd take everybody out if they were unrighteous, but Noah, Daniel, and Job alone, I'd preserve them. That puts this guy in a whole new category, doesn't it? He's like something you never rarely see. He's an individual who rises to the surface. Now, here's the truth coming back to this caution tape thought again. Our God seems to allow situations to become what appear from a human perspective impossible. What Moses thought was absolutely impossible. What Gideon thought was absolutely impossible. What Esther thought was impossible was really impossible before God put his power on display. The reason I bring that up is this. In each situation from Noah all the way to Daniel, you see these very significant heroes are called to do the things they're called to do because of the culture that they live in. In other words, the culture that they're in is so averse to God that God doesn't remove them from the situation, but rather He expects them to thrive in the midst of the situation, to succeed in the midst of culture. Why? So that they will become a force for how people view God. As a matter of fact, you're about to see with Daniel that he reshaped the way that people actually viewed God in the Babylonian Empire. I want you to move forward with me into Daniel chapter 1. What you find here in chapter 1 is the life of a teenager who's been snatched away from his home, from his customs, from everything that he's ever known, his, his entire way of life. Daniel chapter 1 verse 1 says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So we're talking about siege warfare here. In two different kings, it's not one king with a really long name, you're talking about the king of Judah or Israel and and the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, a very significant individual in human history. And from the view of human history, we would look at this and say, well, yep, that's the 605 BC siege of Jerusalem. That's one of three that Nebuchadnezzar brought against the people of Israel. It was part of the Babylonian expansion policy. Here's what they were doing. From India all the way to Africa, like a vacuum cleaner sucking up nations into their empire. They were that powerful. So in this case, Israel fell into their plan. It was just part of their expansion policy. But we understand from a much bigger view, 30,000-foot view, this is really part of a larger whole what's taking place. It's part of an age-old conflict which goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and will climax in the book of Revelation. It's the things that God is allowing to unfold, the ultimate working out of His plan, a real clash of spiritual forces. So in verse 1, you get man's view, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, besieged it. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know that what he's doing is actually being done because God is allowing it. God's allowing these actions. This larger story is told to us in verse 2. Verse 2 says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand 
along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. So verse 2 right away, it's the Lord who did it. God gave Jehoiakim into his hand, meaning God has not taken his hand off the rudder. Even when you look at global events and it looks like, man, things are spinning out of control, God's hand is not off the rudder. He certainly understands what's being played out in the same as the situation here in the Old Testament. He's guiding the events. Let me show you where they were taken so that you get a picture in your mind of what's known as the land of Shinar in the Bible. Land of Shinar is actually what we would consider today the region of modern-day Iran and modern-day Iraq. In that empire, it would have been known as the Persian Empire. So Daniel and his friends are picked up in Jerusalem, literally as captives in bondage, and taken all the way around north of the Arabian Desert because they can't cross the Arabian Desert, and then south down into Babylon along the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Imagine in your mind leaving today, this very morning, somebody take you out into the parking lot and say, let's start walking, and we're not going to stop until we get to Knoxville, Tennessee. That's a very long walk, isn't it? Okay, this is the journey, a little over 500 miles to get them from Jerusalem all the way to Babylon, many of them in chains, in bondage as captives of Nebuchadnezzar. So when it says the Lord gave Jehoiakim into his hand, this is no small event. We get some further insight when we look at 2 Kings 24. 2 Kings 24 says this, And the strength of the population of Jerusalem and Judah and the treasures of the royal palace and of the temple were carried down to Babylon. Now, there's a historian that lived during these ancient days. His name is Herodotus. He gives us some extra information about the city of Babylon and exactly where Daniel was taken to. Babylon is more than a city. It was an empire. But let me put an image up on the screen for you so that you can see what Daniel saw when he came into the city of Babylon. What you're looking at is the Ishtar Gate. Matter of fact, if you go to Germany today, to Berlin, you can go inside a museum and actually see this. This is the literal Ishtar Gate that was found by archaeologists back in 1897 outside the city of Babylon. This is one of eight gates that surrounded the city. So picture this city. Walls, 16 miles by 16 miles by 16 miles by 16 miles that are 250 feet tall that have towers that rise to 400 feet. The walls are so wide that three teams of horses can ride abreast of each other as they're looking down upon the moat which surrounds the city. So if you are a young man being held captive and you're carried into the city, immediately your thought is, I'm not getting out of here. There is no escape. We're given this very, what seems like an insignificant detail, but a very significant detail in verse 2 when we're told it wasn't just the people, it was the vessels of the house of God. Vessels is another word for the furniture, the furnishings of God's temple. Well, let's put that in modern day understanding. Imagine that if our nation was conquered and by the conquering nation, some of the best of the best of our society were taken to a foreign land. And when they left our country, they stopped off in Washington, D.C., and they decided to take the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States of America, and maybe Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, the very things that define us as a country. That's what was taking. You're talking about utter humiliation. A king saying, look how powerful I am. I not only take your people, I take your identity. Here's the implication for us. 
God has allowed the destruction of his own people. God has allowed the conquering of the promised land. God has allowed the destruction of his own temple. No doubt, if you stood in Jerusalem those days, you would hear this. Have you forgotten us? What about all of God's promises? How could he allow this to happen to us? Why are these things unfolding? Now, that would be man's view, but we're looking at God's view this morning. So God's view is different. Look with me on the screen. He gave warnings. Isaiah 39 was a prophecy prior to the conquering of Jerusalem. It says this in chapter 39. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon." See, what you're witnessing in this story is God's absolute sovereign rule over world events. And woven into this global event, right into the fabric of it, is the story of this teenage boy who finds himself caught up in the midst of it. Young Daniel here most likely never saw his parents again. He's very likely between 14 and 16 years of age. The problem with Daniel is he has an image problem. Most of us think of him as a really old man, right? We think of him as like Daniel in the lion's den. He's got this long white beard, long flowing robes. He's the oldest 16-year-old you've ever seen. In this case, in Daniel chapter 1, he's young. He's just a teenager. He's been under his parents' care. So verse 3 gives us this zoom lens, drops from 30,000 feet right down to ground level. It says this, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning and knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So behind the scenes, families have been shredded. They have been ripped apart because the king is ordered to bring in the sons of Israel, meaning they're no longer under the parents' care. They're now captives here. Now, rather than reserving leadership for the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar was a global thinker very intelligent individual, and he realized that if he took the captives of the nations that he had conquered and pulled out of them the brightest of the brightest, the best of the best, and gave them leadership responsibilities within his empire, he could reshape the way that his empire was directed. He could reshape literally the thinking of these young people. That's what he wants to do. So he's pooling the intellect of nations. So Daniel's no longer surrounded by the things of God. He's no longer surrounded by a family who's rearing rearing him in the right way. His family, his society, completely gone. We don't know how many young men met these demanding standards to be accepted into the Royal Academy of Babylon. But verse 4 gives you the specifics. It says, they're youths who have no defect, who are good-looking, who have intelligence, capable of operating within the king's presence. So Ashpenaz has some very specific responsibility. He's got to look for some individuals who represent B'nai. B'nai is a Hebrew word. You see it on the screen. And it means cunning, not in an evil way, but cunning in such a way that they can devise solutions to problems. Super sharp individuals like 
MIT-level individuals, like Harvard Law School-type individuals, very, very bright. What's he going to do with them? Verse 4, it says he's going to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, philosophy, law, mathematics, science, astronomy. All you have to do is begin to think of the Magi who showed up when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Magi who came from the east. Where did they come from? From the land of Persia. Where did they descend from? From the Chaldeans in Babylon. Individuals who were very, very well informed about what was going on in the world. And Daniel's going to have to learn Aramaic, Assyrian, Akkadian. He's going to have to master several languages because he's got to operate in the king's presence. And one other detail, not told in the Bible specifically, but historians have told us, any young man coming into the presence of the king who was to serve the king was made into a eunuch, meaning he was emasculated. His manhood is removed. So stop and think for just a moment of a 14-year-old, 16-year-old that you know and consider what they're up against in this setting. Suddenly, there's no going home. There's no summer vacation. There's no escape. There's no going back to your parents saying, I don't want this. Dorothy can't click her shoes together and say, I don't want to be in Oz anymore. There's no getting out of it. So you have to learn to adapt. Go forward with me to verse 5. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. So three years of the king's diet. Sounds pretty good, right? But it's contrary to God's law because God's law was very specific about what you could eat and what you could drink for a Jew living at that period of time. Why is that so significant to Daniel? Because everything that went before the king first showed up at the foot of the god Bel or the god Marduk. Those are the gods that they worship. So they would literally bring the king's food on a platter, put it at the feet as a sacrifice of the gods they worship, and then lift it up and bring it back to the king for the king to feast on. So if Daniel ate this, he would be defiling himself. Now, the king has a well-formulated systematic plan. Take the outstanding young people of the nation, and overcoming them by force is not adequate to help accomplish what he wants to accomplish. So here's what he's going to do. Separate them from what they know, provide them with new opportunities, give them a sense of abundance so that he can reshape their thinking. He's got a really long-term strategy. So how does Daniel counteract this? Verse 6, now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name of Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Ever had anybody call you names in school and give you a label that you didn't want? Usually something really derogatory to humiliate you, right? To, to cause people to see you in another way and letting them know that you've, they've got power over you. Name-calling, it's as old as time. That's what you see going on here. What I really want you to see is these four names. I'll put them up on the screen for you so that you understand what's being changed here. Daniel, his name means God is my judge. My judge is El. My judge is God, Yahweh. They're telling him his name is Belteshazzar, meaning now he's going to serve as Bel's prince. Well, who is Bel? It's the God of the underworld. See, each of these name changes 
were to identify these young men with the gods that they worshipped. Why? So that they would change their identity. Hey, Belteshazzar, come here. Every time you hear your new name causes you to think, I'm a Babylonian, I'm a Babylonian, I'm a Babylonian. So Nebuchadnezzar successfully destabilizes Israel. He separates the cream of the youth. And what you find is at the very beginning, Daniel faces a clear issue that you struggle with every single day. How do I be spiritually distinct yet culturally relevant? How can I be separated unto God and honor God with my life yet be relevant in the culture that I live in? That's what you find Daniel facing right here. So we're told this in verse 8. This is how he does it. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. So we got this young hero with a key element. The same thing we talked about with David last week. David had personal resolve. Daniel has personal resolve. Now, worldly wisdom would say, what's wrong with you, Daniel? God brought you here. He's provided these opportunities. He certainly knew that you were going to be offered the king's food, Daniel. I mean, what's the big deal? Why do you have to be so obstinate? Why can't you be more tolerant of other people's views of God? What's your problem? You heard those kind of arguments before? Daniel's facing it here. See, too many of our generation would find excellent reasons for compromising. Those are pretty good, sound intellectual reasons why you could compromise. When do you decide to take a stand, though? When you come up against something that you know is completely averse to what God wants you to do, when do you take your stand? Is it after you've paid for the ticket and walked into the movie you should have never been going into? Or is it before when you get the call from your friend saying, hey, we're going to see such and such, you want to go? Is that when you take your stand or is it after you're in the theater? Is it before you pick up the magazine or after you pick up the magazine? Is it before you get into that conversation you have no business getting into or after? When do you take your stand? Well, Daniel, in the very beginning, gave it over to God. He determined in his mind, I'm not going there. Now, he could have made excuses. Everybody's doing it. I am very impressed with Daniel. I, I don't see him making a campaign of any type. He's not saying, impeach Ashpenaz. I want a new ruler. He doesn't do that, right? He, he's not looking to change. He's rather looking to work within the system. He knows what you know. We're not supposed to be conformed to this world, right? That's what Scripture says. We're not to be conformed to this world, but we're supposed to be what, church? Transformed, right? Transformed by the renewing of our mind. How do we do that? Romans 12.1, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you do that? Well, part of renewing your mind is developing the right attitude towards the situation that you're in. So what does Daniel do? Verse 8, it says, he sought permission from the commander. He sought permission to do something he already knew that God had said, this is the way you're supposed to act. When the food was put before him, he didn't have to say, God, what's your will in this? Should I eat it or shouldn't I eat it? God had already said no. So he already knew he didn't have to pray about it. He just went to the commander and said, well, how do I act in this situation? Because I can't eat those things. 
He knew it was forbidden. Here's what's going on. The Babylonians can change Daniel's home. They can change his textbooks. They can change his menu. They can even change his name. But they can't change his heart. That's what can't be changed in you. If you belong to Jesus, you've got this resolve capacity to you to make up your mind just like you did see, see here with Daniel. Here's the result. Verse 9, because Daniel honored God, honored God. Verse 9, now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. So Daniel's under some pretty intense pressure. Would you agree? It, it really is. He's under intense pressure because he knows God's word, but he knows what society wants him to do. And so he's trying to figure out, how do I manage myself in the midst of this situation? Now, verse 9 tells us he obviously has earned a really good relationship with his leader, the person who's over the top of him. But he still has to approach him with humility and with tact. So if you're facing temptation on a daily basis in your life, and you're wondering, how do I defeat that issue? You can look at Daniel in verse 8 and verse 9 and see this model of how he deals with temptation. First of all, verse 8, it says, Daniel purposed in his heart. He's really decisive. Daniel's got humility when he comes to the situation. He's requesting permission to manage the situation. But there's a thing that he has that most people miss. He has a sense of expectation, a sense of expectation that God's going to intervene. See, when you live your life in such a way that it uh, is for God, it produces a sense of spiritual confidence that God is going to act. Look with me at verse 10. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. Guy really knows his employer well, right? He understands what the potential is here. So he's, a, he's afraid to change the king's orders. It's, it's your diet, Daniel. It's my head, okay? So let's understand, you're bringing danger on me. Literally in the Hebrew text, that's what it says. But you and I understand Proverbs 16, 7. God reminds us that when our ways please the Lord, he makes even our enemies to be at peace with us. That's God's promise. So Daniel's a person like that. His ways please the Lord. So Daniel knows that no doesn't always mean no. We saw that last week with David. David went to Saul to convince him to let him fight Goliath. Saul argued with him and told him no. But David knew no doesn't always mean no. Daniel knows that. Look with me at the next verse, verse 11. But Daniel said to the overseer whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. Daniel's proposed a really solid solution here. It's just a 10-day test. In the scheme of things, over a three-year plan, this is not very long at all. Verse 14, so he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. Now that he listened to them is very significant in the sense that Daniel had earned the right to be heard, that this supervisor is willing to listen to him, but there's something more significant here. What Daniel is asking for requires a miracle, a reversal of the laws of nutrition. Let me show you why. Go forward with me to the next verse, verse 15. Verse 15. 
At the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better, and they were fatter than all the use. Fatter, in this sense, is not what you're thinking of in terms of lots of fat or plumpness, but rather, in the Hebrew language, it means a very good color to their skin, very fleshy in their appearance. So, and they were better, fatter than all the youths who had been eating at the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. Uh, the word that's used here in other translations is the word pulse. It's siray in the Hebrew language. And it actually means seed. So I, I know that what you're thinking of right now is carrots, Right? and potatoes and green beans. And if you're a vegetarian, you could say, I could do that for three years. Could you do three years of oatmeal? See, the seed that he's talking about here is really a ground seed. It's oatmeal. Morning, noon, night. Now, for the first day, that's not so bad, right? I could do this. I got this. Second day? Third day? Seventh day? How you doing? 14 days, 21 days, 60 days, five months, a year, year and a half, two years, three years. There's a very interesting word that's used here in this verse. It's the word nasa in the Hebrew language. And it says they continued presenting the food to them. It literally means they took the king's banquet food, put it down on the table in front of Daniel, and said, how you doing? You, you giving up yet? and then took away the king's food and put oatmeal in its place. How do you do that when you're 15, 16? I know the appetite I had as a teenager. I know the appetite my sons had as teenage boys. How do you do that except for that kind of resolve that you determine in your mind that you're going to go God's way? Now, fast forward with me to verse 17 because that's what the author does. He jumps us forward in time. Verse 17, As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. So they got intellectual capacity. Not because of their diet. Don't go out of here today thinking if you eat oatmeal for three years, you're going to get into MIT, okay? That's not what we're talking about here. It's because they were faithful to God. Their commitment was after God's own heart. They chased after him, and God rewarded them. Daniel's even able to interpret dreams. It's the same gift that God gave to Joseph. You see that earlier in the Old Testament. So go forward with me to verse 18. It says this, Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. So I'm sure it's like this, Ashpenaz, bring in the boys. I want to test them. Now, Ashpenaz has to be pretty excited because he knows he's got prized pupils. These individuals are remarkable. And who's personally going to conduct the exam? The king, the one who can remove your head from your body. It says this in verse 19, the king talked with them. And out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. That last part of that verse is really hard. We'd kind of like to remove that, wouldn't we? They win, so they get to go home, right? They, they, they're the Je- Jeopardy champions. They're the grand champions. They get the cash prizes. Don't they get to go back to Jerusalem? 
See, God doesn't have any caution tape. He expects them to succeed in the environment that they're in. Not just succeed, but to flourish. To what degree? We're told this in verse 20. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. When you see that phrase, conjurers and magicians, it's Old Testament language for scientists. Ten times better. Not just than all the other grad students. The king himself has to admit, Daniel is ten times better than everybody who's been in that position for their entire life. Why? Because this teenage kid decided to commit himself to God. For 80 plus years, he ruled in Babylon. It ends with verse 21, and Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Yeah, language is right. Cyrus the great. He served under Cyrus the great, Darius the first, Belshazzar and Belteshazzar, and Nebuchadnezzar. Amazing, amazing legacy for this one who is determined to honor God no matter what. Why? He took down the caution tape. He's willing to say, I don't have a safety zone. I'm willing to do whatever I have to do. And I'm willing to let God do it through me. If Daniel had been worried about pleasing people, or popularity contest, he would have failed God a long time ago. Here's what he knows that many of us take a long time to learn. It's not where you are that ultimately matters. It's who you are. It's who you are in the situation that you are in. Let me link back to where we started in this Hebrew series just to close this out. In the very first week, I asked this question. Can we open ourselves up to the possibility that the conflict, the difficulties that you face in your life, that perhaps that very issue is the thing that God will use to glorify Himself, to grow you in your walk, to draw others into the kingdom. That's what you see with these heroes in every single situation. It's God who is at work in us. That sounds like the Bible. Philippians 2, 13, it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. See, when God presents you with opportunities, today you go out the door, God's going to present you with opportunities. Tomorrow, work, school, God's going to present you with opportunities. It's your responsibility to decide how you're going to respond to that. This is our definition coming out of the Hero Series for Faith. Faith is really my response to what God has revealed God reveals things. God brings opportunities our way. How are we going to respond to it? In short, that's what faith really is. So when you read Hebrews chapter 11, in every single case, every single hero, their faith is evidenced by those who did this. They would do what others would not do. No caution tape. They're willing to set those things aside, those little artificial boundary lines they set up. So here's a question to ask yourself this morning. What if the things that are going on on planet Earth right now, 2014, are going on the way they are, not because of bad luck, 
but rather because our God has his hand on the rudder. And he's allowing his plans to unfold. And what he's really waiting for and watching for are his people who would step into hero mode and be willing to trust him no matter what. That's the way Jesus lived. He lived completely without any caution tape. You look at all these stories and you see that God doesn't remove heroes from culture. He expects us to thrive in the midst of it, to become a force for changing how people view God, how they understand him. That's not the nature of your God to put caution tape up. So why do I have it in your bulletin this morning? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do as we end this. You may have just one among the whole family. Maybe you'll have to share it and pass it around. Maybe you're just an individual here by yourself this morning. But I'm going to encourage you to take whatever obstacle is going on in your life right now. Some of you wrote down obstacles from six weeks ago. To take that piece of caution tape and write on the back of it whatever the obstacle is. You might have to use some really indelible marker when you get home to do that because it might get all smeary on you. But here's the deal. If you'll take that into your next serious time of prayer with God, and I'm not talking about when you pray about your peanut butter and jelly sandwich today, okay? I'm talking about your serious time of prayer. If you'll take that in there and just hold it before God, and we're going to give you the hardest prayer you will ever pray in your life, I promise you. I've had to do it myself multiple times. If you'll take that item and say, God, here's that thing that I've put up. Here's that boundary line. I've, I've let it be a caution tape in my life. Maybe it's a conversation you're not willing to have with a friend. Maybe it's a family member you're not willing to talk to. Or it's the conversation you want to duck out of every time it comes up. Maybe it's work talk in the lunchroom about God. If that's your caution tape, hold it before the Father and ask God to do whatever He has to do. That is a dangerous prayer, church. If you mean it sincerely, God will take you up on it. That's why it's so dangerous. I've had to do that. Father, I can't fix this. Do whatever you have to do. God will take you up on it. So that's why I say the next time you're serious in your prayer, go before the Father. And just know this, church. It's Jesus working through you that accomplishes it. You're not on your own. You're not in a do-it-yourself project, right? You got that. It's God working through us. But it requires you to be surrendered. So I'm going to pray with you about that right now because here's why. What we've learned through this hero series is that your maturing faith allows you to do what others will not do. Let's pray about that. Father, I thank you for this auditorium full of individuals who have been willing to take their time to study your word this morning. And I know you're pleased. Father, I pray that you would send us out with your encouragement, with your boldness, with your strength. Because we would be the first to admit, like Moses and like Esther and like Gideon, we feel like the least. But you see us as warriors, Father, and that's the way you view us and write about us. I pray that you would reshape our thinking. That you would cause us to see ourselves the way you see us. Father, we we would admit that it begins with this step, that we're willing to offer ourselves 
and ask you to do what you have to do. Father, that prayer is really hard for many individuals. So we're going to ask for your strength. It's you who works in us to accomplish your good pleasure. Put us in that place where we're fully surrendered to you. I pray for that as we leave this auditorium. Send us out now with your favor. It's in Jesus' mighty name that we ask this. And all God's people said, Amen.